Is this the right one for an argument? I've told you once. <laughs> no, you haven't. Yes, I have. When? Just now. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. Didn't. I did. I didn't. I'm telling you, I did. You did not. Oh, sorry, is this a five-minute argument or the full half hour? <coughs> oh, oh, just the five-minute one. Fine. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, I did. You most certainly did not. Now, let's get one thing quite clear. <laughs> I most definitely told you. You did not. Yes, I did. You did not. Yes, I did. Didn't. Yes, I did. Didn't. Yes, I did. No, this isn't an argument. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. It's just contradiction. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. It is not. It is. You just contradicted me. No, I didn't. Oh, you did. No, 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 no. You did just no, no, then. No, no, nonsense. Oh, look, this is futile. No, it isn't. I came here for a good argument. No, you didn't. You came here for an argument. All right. So you recognize that many of you uh, from Monty Python. There was no way we're not grown up and mature enough to begin a show like this without invoking the Monty Python arguments sketch. Uh, we are going to be talking about the nature, the value of argument today. Uh, we are going to be speaking with it, uh, <laughs> speaking with it, speaking about it uh, with a whole bunch of really excellent guests. Uh, Lee Siegel, a cultural cultural critic and the author of six previous books. His new book is Why Argument Matters, and it is the, the kind of trigger for this idea for a show. Agnes Callard, who's been here with us before, is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Chicago. She's the author of Aspiration the agency of becoming. She also writes a column for The Point magazine, which often deals with subjects very close to where we're going on the show today. Uh, and she co-hosts the podcast Minds uh, Almost Meeting. A little bit later on, my old friend David Edelstein, he and I like to argue. I mean, we like to argue. Uh, he will be joining me for the for the uh, final segment. Uh, but let's get uh, going here and let's begin by seeing if we can kind of lay out some kind of structure and definition for what it is that we're talking about. So, Lee Siegel, the, the word argument has a, a whole bunch of different meanings. Uh, I sense from your book that we are not necessarily going to invoke all of them. So in the sense that argument matters, um, what kind of argument are we talking about? Well, I, argument encompasses all kinds of things. And, and part of my uh, motive for writing the book was to uh, sort of push back against this idea now that we've you know, fallen far away from the ideal of argument. You hear that all the time. Uh, in Obama's memoir, uh, he lamented from a lofty height uh, what he said was the fact that that people uh, were moved more by feelings than by facts, uh, which is absurd because in in his in his famous uh, speech, which he gave on race, the Jeremiah Wright speech, as it's known, uh, he he moved people using feelings, not facts, uh, and the you know people they talk about the the golden age of argument, you know Aristotle, Cicero. Uh, those guys wrote about using everything you can to to manipulate an audience's feelings. Uh, so even when you know people are screaming at each other on Twitter, even when it seems like argument has been debased, I, I don't think so. I think our argument can flourish in many forms. And if I can just uh, finish with a little flourish, uh, my book does talk about the argument when it's at its best, which is uh, understanding your opponent's position fully inhabiting your opponent and using empathy as a weapon of rhetorical destruction. All right. Um, yeah. So, you know, Agnes, you've made a similar argument, particularly about Twitter. In fact, you made that argument on Twitter that that we have perhaps exaggerated the corrosive effect of argument on social media, that it's not impossible to have constructive argument there. But But I'd rather have you say this than me. I mean, I, I think I've 
in a way, I would want to make a very different claim. Um, it's that it's precisely because we can't inhabit the points of view of other people that we need to have arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, so I see argumentation as social. Um, like I say something and then you say I'm wrong. Twitter is a pretty good place to do that. Uh, it has other problems. Um I do agree that emotions can play a part in arguing. It's interesting that though Aristotle said that, his writing is very unemotional. So that's a big difference between Aristotle and Cicero. Um, Of course, Cicero has very unemotional writing too. I mean, Cicero's speeches are emotional, but Cicero's philosophical texts are unemotional. So one can ask, what is the role of emotion in arguing? Uh, I think that's a hard question. I think if you could answer that question, you get a better grip on in what ways Twitter can be a place for argument or not. All right. I want to go ahead. Go ahead start, yeah. Can I start an argument? Yeah. Can I argue? Yeah. That's what I was hoping. <laughs> I, I think you're, I think you, uh, you, you uh, have misunderstood Aristotle. Uh, his, his book is not an argument since, as you know, well, argument was made orally uh, at the time, not in written form. His book's about argument and a good part of his book is spent uh, detailing the different personalities of uh, uh, people who might be in your audience, old people, uh, young people, rich people, and talking in, in the most cynical way about how to manipulate them. So I, I think I, I disagree with you about that. And in terms of not being able to inhabit your opponent, again, I, I take exception to that, Agnes, because, you know, uh, uh, Edmund Burke uh, inhabited Lord Bolingbroke uh, as he was arguing against him so so completely that people thought he was Bolingbroke uh, when he wrote his famous treatise against him. And, and that's a staple of British debating, of course, learning how to uh, play the role of, of, of the opponent. So I, I, I think that it's a basic necessity, if you want to argue well, to really make your opponent's argument more completely uh, than they would. Uh, and that's that's really what carries the day with the most effective argument. You and in, you inhabit your opponent better than they ever could, and then then you proceed to dismantle their their argument. I, I mean, I, I may be like a ref at a tennis match today, as opposed to the host of a show, but I'm okay with that role. Yeah, Agnes, go ahead. Do you think that um, if you were arguing, uh, you know, against someone, do you think it would ever be possible for you to inhabit their point of view so completely? that you wouldn't actually care how they would react to the argument you just made against them. Why would I want to do that? <laughs> well, didn't you just, I mean, I thought you were- um, why, why would I not care? I, I mean, the whole reason I'm arguing- Well, if you inhabited it better than they did, then your reaction to their argument would be more instructive than theirs. No, I, I think you're confusing uh, inhabiting with actually being. Uh, you, you you couldn't possibly take the place of someone. That that's a metaphysical impossibility. But but I, I for example I uh, at the beginning of the the pandemic uh, I I wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I I uh, wrote against this sudden craze among my fellow liberals uh, for medical rationing for euthanasia. Uh, and what I did was. Uh, I made their argument. I'm, I'm not flattering myself. It's just what I did. I, I made their argument uh, better than they could. I used their first principles, uh, and I and I asked them, uh, "What what happens uh, if a, a doctor is unconsciously biased by uh, a patient's 
uh, age, race, gender, or disability. Uh, and it was a pretty, I think it was a way to inhabit their position even more fully than they did. That's what I mean. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to jump in here because I just I, I although this is a very interesting argument, I also feel as though we need to not get too deeply into the weeds here and really help our audience kind of understand what it is that we're talking about. Um, and so let's sort of back up a little bit and Lee, let's make a what I would call a fairly simple case on behalf of argument. Uh, one, one of the places my thoughts go here uh, is to the difference between the well-celebrated difference between uh, the Bay of Pigs uh, fiasco uh, and the Cuban Missile Crisis, the latter being kind of on our mind a bit these days. And, and as we're told by Irving Janus and Groupthink and in other accounts, one of the problems what, with the Bay of Pigs was nobody argued. Nobody in the White House argued there was this kind of uh, mythologized Camelot sense that this was an excellent place full of excellent people, and the JFK was the most excellent of all people. And so there was no real room to, for anybody to say this might be a really terrible idea, that they recognized this uh, afterwards, too late. Uh, but by the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, Bobby Kennedy had been kind of appointed uh, as the person who, if everybody else was kind of nodding along with JFK, would be shaking his head, his head. And that's a really easy way of making a case for argument, right? You miss stuff if you don't argue. Well, that's a great point, uh, Colin. And why don't we update the analogy to Ukraine, right? I, I, I mean, you know, everywhere you look, and, and this is where the right and left both agree, uh, Putin's deranged. Putin wants to ex uh, re re uh, recover the uh, Soviet empire. He wants to expand into, uh, into the Baltic states and finally into Western Europe. He's crazy. He's lost touch with reality. You, 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 university presidents ally themselves with Ukraine, shut down uh, any kind of point of view that would not take take the side of Putin. Nobody's doing that. But to make make the argument that, in fact, Putin's acting rationally uh, out of, out of a, a rational self-interest, thinking about his frontiers, thinking about the borders of Russia, thinking about Ukraine's constitutional vow to, to join NATO and have missiles perhaps placed in in Ukraine, that that changes it. If you want to argue that he's a he's a rational actor acting in an evil manner, that's different from saying he's a deranged actor acting in an evil manner. No one's making that argument. So yes, it's a great point. You need people making that making the opposite argument to 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 to, to have a full perspective on on the situation. Although, Agnes, if I were to make the argument that, that goes a little bit beyond what Lee just sketched out, if I were to make the argument, you know what, uh, Putin has some legitimate claim to that territory. Russia, Russia has some kind of claim to that territory. Uh, there are historical arguments uh, in favor of that, plus the implicitly existential argument that Lee's making what happens, you know, if Ukraine becomes part of NATO, blah, 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 blah. If I were to say, look, you know, th he's got a case. He's got a really good case for going in there and getting Ukraine. I'm guessing a number of quote unquote platforms might be looking at my comments and thinking, wow, should we should we delete that? Should we ban him from Twitter or YouTube or wherever it is that he's saying this stuff? Can you say this stuff now? And and that is a moment there that we're in that I would argue is a little bit different from where we've been historically, where you, when you can say something and then there's a whole bunch of other people who are going to ask the question, wow, can you even make that argument? What as a philosopher is your response? Well, I mean, there's a question of what we're um, what we're comparing to. So we could compare to a time and a place where there were no such platforms available. And so, in effect, people were prevented from making those arguments because Twitter didn't exist. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so 
I, I think it actually can be quite hard to measure freedom in that way. Um, could people make those arguments to their friends um, before Twitter and can, can they continue to do so? Probably. Um, but I, I guess I think there's something here fundamental at stake. There's a difference, like one view of argument is that an argument is a kind of persuasive speech aimed at an audience where the, at, the, at its limit point, the arguer would so fully swallow up the point of view and position of their opponent that there would be no need for any opponent to even speak, right? Um, and um, that might be the view of argument if, if the word argument is translating the, that's a Latin word, right? They're translating the Greek word like rhetorique, rhetoric, um, which is Aristotle wrote a book called The Rhetoric, right? And it's a book about long persuasive speeches. But you might also translate the word, Greek word logos, which also means reason, right, as argument. And there, um, you might think what, what you're doing when you're arguing is you're engaged in a cooperative process of finding the truth to which the expression of the other point of view is necessary to you as an arguer. Right. Um, not so there in the first picture, we really we think from the point of view of the audience when you say, well, we need multiple speakers to get a full perspective. We're imagining ourselves as not one among the speakers, but as part of the audience watching a kind of spectacle. And we might think the ideal version of that spectacle is just one of them is so masterful that they've swallowed up the points of view of the other. I guess I tend to think of argument more along the lines of logos, of an inquiry into the truth. Uh, where you rely essentially on other people to see your blind spots. And no matter how good you are at it, you're always going to need those people. So, uh, you know, Lee, one person who probably would endorse the, the point of view Agnes just laid out would be the late William F. Buckley. He had this show called Firing Line. And, and I guess there is a they revived it with Margaret Hoover as the host. I had no idea that that had happened until this morning when I was getting ready for this show, which I think tells you something about maybe a shift that has taken place. But that was basically Buckley's idea, right, that that the tension uh, of argument, uh, the tension, including the possibility that you might lose an argument, uh, uh, is, first of all, more exciting than just one person trying to lay out a position, but also that m- more value comes out uh, in many cases of that tension, uh, of the of what Agnes is describing to people m- maybe exploring each other's blind spots. Well, you know, that's very, um, very au courant. You know, that's very of today uh, when we all kind of couch things in terms of virtue and what's good and that sounds very virtuous and that's great. But that's not what really argument, that's not what argument is. No, nobody who wants to win an argument wants the audience to see their, their, their blind spots or their hole. People want to win, that's it. And, and, and you, you know, you, people come away from an argument a feeling either that they've, they've triumphed or they've been vanquished or defeated. The, the reaction to an argument is emotional. Uh, it's not academic or, or intellectual. I know I've made my life arguing in, in various forms, uh, writing, you know, op-eds and uh, uh, polemical book reviews and even a memoir that was, you know, kind of a, an argument as, as a life can be. Uh, and, and I know that when I argue, I, I want to win and the people I'm arguing against want to win. Uh, and, and nobody wants to uh, appear, uh, you know, uh, well, when you the great the most passionate arguments for the most passionate arguers, everything's at stake. 
Uh, and that's when arguments really thrilling and fun, like when, when the feminists took on Norman Mailer at town hall, that's, that's fun. That's where the fur, fur is flying and, you know, people are, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're animated and things are at stake because for me and what I, how I, the argument I make about argument in my book is that argument is a, an ultimate form of caring about the world. And if you care about the world, you want your point of view to prevail. Yeah, although I think that can lead to as many bad arguments as good arguments. And let me give an example of this, all right? One of the places that people see argument these days, I would argue that it is something of a far cry from what Buckley was trying to do uh, with firing line, is on The View, where people do argue pretty regularly, you know, for the delectation of 2.5 million or or so viewers. So, uh, and, and one of the interesting things about it is, I don't think they're very good at arguing. Uh, and uh, they're also trying to kind of invent rules for how to do it in real time in front of the audience. You're going to hear this. Here's a little clip. You're going to hear Whoopi Goldberg kind of stepping in between Joy Behar and Megan McCain. And if we sit here and act like there isn't a crisis, that it's just it's crazy people living in border states that think that there's a crisis at but like, a like I just ticket said, for Trump Like I just forward. said, this guy who's coming in wants to help those countries. That's mm-hmm. the way to solve the problem. Keep them there happy or whatever. Solvent, give them a house, give them food, help them, help their children. Give a Stop, the, cr- a, stop a the crime rates. Well, we've had a I'm bunch of liberal guests helping. who do not Hold want to on. send an aid I at listen all. to you. Let me just finish. <laughs> yeah, part of your job is to listen to me. Okay, so here's the deal. Here's what's here's what's not going to happen today. We're not going to do this. Everybody gets a conversation piece. Everybody gets to say their piece. And we don't need to comment if we don't like what we're hearing. Just let folks talk. So finish what you're saying. I forgot what it was. Now. All right. So, so Agnes, you know, um, uh, having read your work, uh, and, and particularly one particular essay, I think that was in The Point, uh, I know that you're not that far away from Lee in the sense that you feel as though passionate arguing that verges on fighting uh, is not necessarily a bad thing. But maybe you could say more about that. Yeah. So I think um, I would just amend something Lee said. He said, Uh, if you care about the world, you want your point of view to prevail. I think if you care about the world, you want your point of view to prevail, provided your point of view is correct. Um, And I think argument is an attempt to figure that out, (laughs) to figure out whether your point of view is correct. I think that argument works best when people are very heavily invested in their point of view so that they're going to make the absolute best case for it. Um, And so you want to win. I agree that you want to win. Um, but I, the, where, I, where I agree with Socrates is that I think that in, a, in an argument, the winner and the beneficiary, the person who's benefited, the person who's made better off by the argument, aren't the same person. So Socrates said, um, refuting someone is the greatest favor that you can do to them. Um, because being wrong about things that are important is uh, devastatingly bad for you. Uh, So I think that in an argument, it's the person who loses who's benefited by the argument. But that kind of benefit is one that we're not capable of getting into view until it happens to us. Because of course, we don't see that as a benefit from the the other side back when we still believed our old view, right? Um, So I think that um, that's what arguing is. It's a process where the winner is the one who is being, in effect, um, the altruist, is helping the other person. Hmm. I, I, I feel as though the emotional states of many arguers, I mean, I read that piece, I read the piece where you made that 
particular point in the point. Uh, and, and I thought it was a brave argument. Uh, I'm not sure I really kind of identi- can identify that in the emotional states I see of people <laughs> who feel as though they're losing an argument. Uh, the, yeah. The- well, maybe can I add something? Yeah, yeah. So I think that um, on top of most argument, there is almost like a kind of sim. It's a there's a symbolic layer that gets mapped onto many arguments, and that um, the mapping on of that symbolic layer is going to be um, that's going to happen more. The more the argument is in public, the more there is an audience, right? For it, then the whole argument becomes in a way a kind of drama, right? And all those elements of drama. Um, there are contexts where they get stripped away, where all you have is two people arguing. And in, in philosophical texts, that's what you have, right? Uh, the, so the less drama and symbolism there is, um, the more the picture that I was just describing, the Socratic picture, comes to be just seem obviously true. It's obviously true to me that when people like show me what's wrong in a paper of mine, they're just helping me. But the more symbolism and drama there is, at the other extreme, the more argument veers into like warfare, right? Uh, you know, overt or covert forms of warfare. And so whenever there's any argument going on, there's also often, usually also a layer, this symbolic layer on top of it. And a lot of our emotions are connected to that symbolic layer. All right. So I think this is a good place to pause for a second. Uh, we have to take a quick break. We'll come back, uh, both Agnes and Leah, uh, with us for the next segment as well. There's so much uh, I want to get into. So let's take a break and get right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the Go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org slash WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmini Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. Family Court of the 5th District, Los Angeles County, now in session. The Honorable Marvin Munson presiding. All rise. (laughs) 
Have you sat before her before? No, no. The judge sits first, then we sit. Well, have you sat after her before? Sat after her before? You mean have we argued before her before? The judge sits in judgment. The counsel argues before the judge. So have you argued before her before? Before her before or before she sat before? Before her before. I said before her before. No, you said before she sat before. Well, I did it first. Look, then don't argue. I'm not. No, I'm you just... don't argue. We argue. Counsel argue. You appear. The judge sits. Then you sit. Or you stand in contempt. And then we argue. Counsel argues. Which you've done before. Which we've done before. All right, so one of my favorite scenes in movies, uh, any excuse to play it, it's from Intolerable Cruelty. That's uh, uh, George Clooney and Ed Herman and the very underrated Paul Edelstein. So we are talking about argument. Uh, We are doing that with uh, two wonderful guests here, Lee Siegel, uh, a cultural critic and the author of six previous books. His new book is Why Argument Matters. It is a book that manages to be sprawling despite being 145 pages long. And I'm not kidding. It's just uh, all over the place in really interesting areas. Perhaps the only book of intellectual criticism to mention Moses and Abraham and Gloria Gaynor within about, you know, 50 words of each other. Uh, And Agnes Callard is with us, uh, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Chicago. She's the author of Aspiration, the Agency of Becoming, writes a column for The Point magazine, also writes in The New York Times, co-hosts the podcast Minds Over Meeting. So... There's so much to talk about, and we won't be able to get to all of it. And I'm about to open kind of a fairly large can of worms, and I hope I can keep all the worms from crawling all over the show. But, Lee, one of the things that you deal with in the book is is a little uh, storm that, that brewed up a couple of years ago. I've lost track of what year it actually was. But it was the so-called Harper's Letter. This is a group of intellectuals uh, who were – uh, lamenting the fact that uh, discourse seems to be seem to be breaking down, particularly maybe in liberal arts colleges and universities, uh, that the ability to listen to points of view that any individual person might find uh, uncomfortable or unsavory was beginning to erode in a way that didn't really benefit anybody. I don't know if I'm su- summarizing it all that well, but it's more or less that. Uh, and, and you go into quite a bit of detail about it. Maybe you could just say a little bit more about how you saw that particular argument about arguments unfold. Yeah, I I was mainly interested in the style of the letter. And the style of the letter simply wants to prove that the proponents of cancel culture are uh, really practicing what they're preaching against. Uh, You know, that the the, the, uh, proponents of of cancel culture uh, are are creating the, the kind of repressive atmosphere they claim their targets have created. Uh, and, and I talk about how this is a new style in argument. Aristotle never talks about using an opponent's premises against, against them. Uh, and it's very closely related to the ad hominem style, which is the dominant style of argument now. You, you, you attack people, basically. You say, well, you, you can't mean that. You can't argue that because you did that. You know, you, you, you undermine your own position because we saw you yesterday doing that. Because 10 years ago on Twitter, you said that. And I find this kind of it's a it's a it's a kind of a conversion of irony into hypocrisy. Uh, but in terms of the Harper letter, Harper's letter, what I also saw was that they were they were practicing this kind of ironic undermining of the opponent as a co- sort of elite style. And I found it kind of even though I agreed with much of what they were saying, I also found it sort of windy and complacent uh, and coded. Uh, and I contrasted it with a response in a, an online magazine called The Objective, where they actually called out some of the signatories of the Harper's letter uh, for, for uh, 
essentially uh, themselves practicing what they were preaching against, that they at one time had shut down people and canceled people. So it really, you know, it started ironically and ended, it started with irony and ended with hypocrisy. And I wanted to explore these, these different styles of argument, trying to make the point that everything is very personal now. Everything yes. we do is personal. And it's really, it's part of the reason why argument flutters off into these different forms. But you can barely say a word, utter a syllable without it being personal. You know, that, that without getting into it, the Oscars slap, right? <laughs> uh, Will Smith slap, that embodied everything that's happening in culture now. You know, you don't you don't sit and you take it. You don't sit and take it. You don't respond in kind. You get up and you smash and you destroy. And all through the spectrum, on every level, everything's personal. And what I wanted to point out was Harper's letter again, how it starts with a kind of lofty, ironic undermining, uh, and then sort of shifts into the hypocritical refutation uh, in the in the object. Although we, we, we should actually say that, you know, or I, I want to say anyway, that in the case of Will Smith, I mean, if you sort of look at the the bulk uh, of responses to it, I, I think more people, I mean, this is sort of like Robert Fulgham, you know, everything I need to know I learned in kindergarten. But um, I mean, the bulk of people are saying he shouldn't have done that. That's I, I realize that's a very low bar to clear, but that, that's, that's not the way that we, we want to be responding. I and mean, people at least get that. But Agnes, you know, to Lee's point about you the know, Harper, I, the, I just let me just, I, hey, Lee, could you just let me go? to Agnes for a second because I really want to get both of you involved in the conversation. So Agnes, you know, I know you re- you responded to the Harper's letter too. Uh, uh, just to Lee's point though, the, one of the first waves of response was this weird, I'm not going to say cancel culture because it's overworked, but this kind of disqualifying. I saw a lot of people go, well, J.K. Rowling signed that letter, so it can't be any good because J.K. Rowling isn't any good because she took this and that position about trans persons. Th- there was, I mean, almost beyond a- ad hominem, there was a sense that the mere participation of a person who had somehow or other been disqualified meant that the argument itself uh, was was not even really worth dealing with. I don't think the Harper's letter gave an argument. Mm. Uh, there was no reasoning in it. There was no argumentation, uh, though I would describe the style of it as coercive speech. Um, so there were a lot of imperatives. There were a lot of we refuse, we stand our ground, we stomp our feet, etc. <laughs> Um, and in fact, the very style of here's a, like a bunch of famous people names attached to a position. So you should believe it. That's also coercive. And when you when you behave coercively to someone, they tend to respond coercively. So I think the whole, oh, look, J.K. Rowling signed it is really just picking up on the spirit in which the letter was expressed. And so I, that's why I wrote to Harper's and I said, you know, there are actually arguments that exists for free speech. Uh, John Stuart Mill wrote a book um, uh, about freedom in general, and a lot of it is about why we should have free speech. Um, and th- that's not what this looks like. Although you, I'm sure you must have been intrigued by what happened within the last week or so when the New York Times uh, came up with this kind of mega editorial uh, suggesting that free speech was endangered, uh, endangered by some of the same things really that the Harper's letter, I, I think, was it was evoking. And interestingly, yeah, well, let me just let me just yeah, Lee, let me just finish a thought here. And and one of the things that that happened in that situation was people went nuts. You're uh, really getting really mad at the New York Times uh, for what they claim were false equivalencies and stuff like that. But they were kind of making the point of the New York Times, I thought, by suggesting that how dare the New York Times, you know, say anything like this about free speech or suggest that it's a kind of multi-sided problem. So, yeah, Lee, what were you going to say? 
Well, you know, the Times, this is sort of like Tom and Daisy Buchanan in, in The Great Gatsby. They just smash things mm -hmm. up recklessly and then they then they retreat back to their uh, expansive uh, realm of of privilege. You know, they 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 went through the culture for the past two years, setting men against women, black against white, uh, uh, you know, cis against everything else. And, and then suddenly they they decide that they're going to. As, a, as an op-ed editor confided to me, be in correction mode. Well, my funny story about the Times, having written for them for 35 years, is that uh, they asked me to write an editorial based on my book. And I wrote it, and they wanted to do all kinds of stuff to it. And I pulled it, and I lost my temper. And I said, uh, you know, I'm tired of the sanctimonious crap uh, in your newspaper, and fasten your seatbelts, because I'm going to expose it all. And two weeks later, they, they ran that editorial. Now, was that in response to me? I don't know. But I have to say that what bothered me about that editorial was just that it was basically posturing. Uh, it wasn't, it, it, there was no content to it. It was just repositioning themselves. And I, I think they have a lot to account for, uh, you know, uh, and you can't just get out of it by saying, you know, doing penance uh, and shifting your position. And I just want to say one other thing about the, Agnes's use of coercive. I, I take your point, Agnes, and it's a strong point. And I, I see what you mean. I, I, I do think, however, that coercive is, is a, it's a, it's a strong word. You know, it's, it's a letter and they're not coercing anyone. You know, you get coerced when you, you, you know, when you're a, like shoplifting or someone thinks you're shoplifting in a store and a security guard grabs you by the arm and twists it behind your back and pushes you out of the store, then you're coerced. Um, I, I don't, I, I, I don't think it was so much coercive as snobbish, uh, a, a, almost a kind of sniffy Edwardian attitude towards a, a whole new set of circumstances. Uh, and that, that's why I think the letter lacked force and became a kind of, uh, you know, figure of fun. In a way. Agnes, because I know free speech is close to your heart these days and you're working on a book uh, involving it. And uh, by the way, and to Lee's point, I, I one of my reactions to the New York Times thing was, in fact, that not having dealt with the firing of Don McNeil, not having dealt with the Tom Cotton right. episode, yes. They, yes. They, they basically were not looking at the beam in their own eyes, just the moats in yes. the other eyes. Yes. So I yes. think that's a very fair point. But Agnes, overall, I'm, I'm sure you watched that whole thing play out. I mean, how did you process it in terms of the way you're thinking about free speech right now. I did notice that they studiously avoided coercive language uh, when I'm calling coercive language, which you could define as, um, you know, I, I agree coercive language is not going to physically pressure anyone, um, but it is a kind of pressure to believe not on the basis of reasons is how I would put it. Um, and uh, it was it was it was written in very, very carefully um, by, you know, even by contrast with the op-ed from the week earlier, um, uh, I can't remember her name, Emily Camp, uh, somebody yeah. Camp, yes. uh, saying, you know, at Virginia, they have uh, suppression of speech. That one had some of the, uh, let's say, dramatic language, we can put it that way. And the New York Times up, it was very, very calm and it had lots of like data embedded in it. Right. Um, I think that that is an attempt to, um, you know, turn turn down the heat. Uh, I, I, I think the idea that everything is is personal now isn't quite right. Um, the way that I would put it is that everything is symbolic. Um, that you know the the uh, uh, one comedian making a joke is now a symbolic attack, 
right? That's how Will Smith read it. This was an attack against me. And he has to respond to that attack by defending, right? Uh, so I think we're in a space where a lot of our interactions have a symbolic overlay. And so we're sort of like, at the same time as we're talking and communicating, we're like fighting this other battle at the same time. That makes it really hard. We're like, it's like juggling. And the New York Times was trying to um, turn down the volume on the on the symbolism. But I think it wasn't very successful because they didn't do it by way of making room for that much content. So I agree with Lee on that. Well, that's because that op-ed was was written by the publicity department. That was not written by by actual editorial writers. Hey, I'm gonna, we're going to have to pivot here and take take a little break here. Uh, we've been talking to Agnes Callard and uh, and to Lee Siegel. Um, but yeah, yeah, Agnes, to your point, before we go, I, I do think that the symbolic point is a really great one. And they've now there's been studies done in the world of kind of the the neurology of political science that if you tell people that a particular position, let's say of about, I don't know, Lyme disease is associated with the right or with the left, people will then make up their minds based on that association as opposed to trying to evaluate it. <laughs> They'll just say, oh, well, the pe- people on that side believe that. I can't possibly agree with it. And I do think we've kind of moved into that sort of tribalism. Anyway, we've got to take a really quick break here. Lee Siegel's book is Why Argument Matters. Agnes Callard uh, writes for The Point magazine, sometimes for The New York Times as well. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. Uh, Lee's book goes a lot into the whole question of art and the arts. And I would like to do that with my friend David Edelstein. You know what? I don't want to get into some nasty fight. So can we please talk to each other the way the therapist told us to talk to each other? Fine. Fine. It makes me feel sad when you are dishonest. I understand it makes you feel bad when I am dishonest with you. It hurts my feelings when you treat me with contempt and corner me and try and trick me into lying. Okay. It makes me sad when it's so easy to trick you into lying because you're such a lying... That's not, you can't do that. You can't do that. The therapist said you're not allowed to judge me. That's not a judgment. That's just a fact. All right. So it's hard to argue. Well, uh, I want to thank, uh, first of all, our technical producer, Kat Pastor, uh, for running everything today, uh, and senior producer emeritus of The Colin McEnroe Show, the great Betsy Kaplan, is the producer of this uh, episode. So now joining me uh, is America's Greatest Living Film Critic, David Edelstein. Uh, we all rejoiced to, to see him back on CBS this morning, uh, last week. Uh, and... So I don't know. So I, I should say, David and I are friends. We have actually been arguing for years about movies, usually in other aspects of the arts. I don't think we've ever gotten really mad at each other. Um, and in fact, although David is now barking at me, which I feel you know is not a good way to begin. Um, but um, David, I want to begin. 
Don't 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 uh, let, let me let me interject myself okay. even before you begin. Okay. I just want to say I was watching as a, as a theater critic. I was very interested in the preceding <laughs> argument between uh, between Lee and uh, Agnes. Yeah. And uh, Agnes, I apologize for for my uh, my dog again. The um, uh, I was very interested because I was I was hearing Agnes. Uh, employing a kind of uh, very inclusive uh, conciliatory style that I often see in Rachel Maddow on her show on MSNBC. She often said right at the end of, of questions. She was looking for consensus. She wanted to, to uh, you know, argue for the idea that we, we uh, strengthen each other by our arguments, by, uh, by, and we, we come into them with a certain humility. On one hand, we have to be confident enough to make an argument, but on the other hand, we have to be open enough to be able to grow. And then I heard Lee uh, working in a much more, uh, sorry to be gender, gender about it, but a much more male sort of dismissive mode. He opened actually by saying that she she didn't understand Aristotle. I was very happy that that uh, she didn't take the bait on that because I gather she understands Aristotle very well. And uh, he was he, and, and he argued for for the power of empathy to really understand to grasp your opponent's point of view so you can sadistically demolish them. And uh, I found that and and then you were in the middle trying to trying to mediate this and trying to trying somehow to keep the conversation going so it didn't get into back and forth and, and advance advance the conversation. So a, as a piece of theater, <laughs> I found that I found that extremely interesting and useful in just it, and stepping back on it to to examine the ways in which we argue and and our aims in doing so. All right. So, yeah, Daniel Radcliffe will play me in the stage version. Um, <laughs> so I want to go back to, I think, 1994. You would know better than I. But so because uh, I want to talk about one of the things that critics do that I can fi I find quite thrilling, but I I'm not sure everybody else does. So whenever this was, I had just seen Schindler's List. And, you know, and I like most people, I just sat there crying, particularly at the end when Neeson makes that incredible speech about like whatever that costs and what he could have bought with it in terms of human lives instead and stuff. I'm just a, a puddle and I'm just very much impressed by this movie. Uh, and... Um, and then somehow or other, I pick up The New Republic and I read Leon Wieseltier, who kind of famously took the movie apart uh, and called it self-regarding. Uh, I'll never forget that particular term. Uh, and, and then went into explanations for why it was self-regarding. And I'm not saying that he turned me or, you know, or turned me against the movie or anything like that. But it was sort of thrilling to read something. And he's a really good writer. Uh, and you know, writers like him and Christopher Hitchens and people like that, you know, it's exciting to read. Or you. I mean, a lot of times when you would write movie reviews, I would think, well, this is going to be fun because I'm not going to like what he says. But he's going to say it so well that I'll get to think uh, instead of just reflexively going, well, I kind of like that. Uh, and, and I think that is something that critics do. But, but uh, respond. Well, yes. I mean, uh, one one hopes, one tries to do that. I one of the reasons, one of many reasons for for loving Pauline Kael, as I did uh, as a as a writer and as a person, is that uh, very often if she had the opposite view. Uh, say she hated a movie that I loved, she did a better job of evoking it and analyzing it and explaining what was there and then taking it apart than I could have done in making the case for it. And I think that's a very important quality in a critic. There are some critics who uh, who you read who who I think 
and maybe Lee to an extent is, is one of them when, when he's written reviews, they, they, they want to, they want to arouse, they want to provoke you. They want to make you angry. Sometimes at them, they want to project a certain superiority. Uh, and that is a very valid rhetorical strategy. Criticism, as critics, we are, we are arrogant. We, by definition, we seek to arrogate the opinions of others. If we didn't, then we, then we wouldn't be much good as critics. So, I, I do think that there, there, there are uses to that, but I do admire, I do so admire somebody who can turn you around simply by, simply by doing a better job of saying what is there. But that takes a lot of work. And on a certain level, it takes a lot of humility because you have to open yourself. He had to open himself up to that movie in order to be able to characterize it. The way he did, he had to let it. He had to let it get to him in order to be able to take it apart. I think that's. I think that's why uh, uh, the best critics are both arrogant and humble at the same time. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's very much uh, the point of, of one of Agnes's pieces that she was kind of evoking. I think in the second segment where she said there, there should be almost a kind of gratitude to the person who, by from the person who loses an argument because that's how you grow. That's that in fact is how you develop your faculties. Uh, yeah, although it's very uh, and and as Lee and as well as she pointed out to Lee, you know, you're not going to get that from somebody you're not going to get somebody acknowledging that you have you've taught them something when they've just called you an idiot or when they've just said that you know you don't understand aristotle or something like that that's not <laughs> but but if 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 you're if you don't want to build consensus if if you are imagining an audience there the entire time see lee was lee was imagining an audience there and agnes was speaking purely of it as an argument uh, in and of itself uh, as a good thing um, if you want to get an audience responding, if you want to write a hatchet job nowadays, and, and they're very popular, they're more popular than ever, you know, you, you really want the, the reader to go, yeah, man, you killed them. You killed them. There's nothing left of that SOB. <laughs> you know, before uh, we run out of time, do you think, yeah. uh, do you think of art, uh, art in general, the arts in general, as individually making an argument. Uh, in other words, is, I don't know, Coltrane making an argument when he plays my favorite things that way. Is, is Klimt making an argument uh, when he paints uh, Adele Block Bauer? Uh, and, and, I mean, are the movies that you, re you review, do you see them as making arguments? Yes. Yeah. In, most, in most cases, absolutely. Sometimes they're conscious arguments and sometimes they're unconscious arguments. Yes. And you do have to engage with works. That, you mean, you can go too far. You don't want to I mean, nowadays in, in certain publications, they really will, will examine every piece to see whether it conforms with what the prevailing uh, gender ideas are or political ideas. And, and that's not a good way to experience art. That's, that's a way of closing yourself to it before you can even engage with it. But I do think that if you look at uh, some of Clint Eastwood's movies, let's say his Captain, um, uh, his Sully, Sully movie, for mm -hmm. example, that was an argument. Sully is not a uh, is not a controversial figure. What he did was not controversial, but but Clint created a um, a bugaboo. Uh, uh, the National Transit Safety Board suddenly representing government as opposed to the superior enlightened individual, as Ayn Rand might uh, might characterize it, to show how uh, government bureaucracy was actually actively interfering with the well-being of heroes. Um, that is, to me, unconscionable. <laughs> and I do see that. And I see it. I see 
and there are strategies in in painting, in music as well. John John Coltrane was having a dialogue with with my favorite things. You know, he was commenting on it. He was he was embracing elements of it, and he was taking it in his own direction. And he was suggesting a larger philosophy of music and a philosophy of art, art philosophy of art, and, and a philosophy of being. So yeah, the question is, as a critic, are you going to get angry at it? Are you going to try to destroy the artist? With whom you disagree? Are you, you know, how can you read such and such? Who, who his motives? Was Leon Weaseltier right that that the movie itself, which has no uh, independent existence, was self-admiring? Um, that's a that's a pretty strong statement. Um, how angry do you get? How dismissive do you get? How personal do you get? Uh, that's an ongoing problem question for a critic. I think it's also, I mean, in a much more benign and, and maybe less elevated way, true that art can make very, very, I'll give you, I'll give it like a really accessible thing because I was thinking about this musical today. I was thinking about Hairspray. You know, in Hairspray, John Waters makes kind of arguments about fat acceptance. He makes uh, arguments about uh, racial inclusivity. He makes arguments about the joy that comes when those things happen in a really good way. And yes, I mean, it's not necessarily a serious work of social criticism, but I mean, in some ways it's more powerful than a serious work of social criticism. Just in well, this, you know why? Why? Do you know why tell Hairspray me. is more powerful yeah. than a piece of social criticism? Do you want me to lecture? Shall I tell you? Yes. Um, it's because uh, that movie was conceived by John Waters as both a love letter to that particular dance show he grew up with, but also as a satire of teen message movies. <laughs> so he was making fun of the genre. He was making fun of that kind of film at the same time as he was delivering a beautiful message about about uh, you know multiculturalism and acceptance of one's body. So he was able. He is a, an example of an artist who was able to have it both ways. He loved the fact that that was his first PG movie, and that he could put in little lessons all while laughing at the form. So that's a great rhetorical strategy. Yes. Well, we have to stop there. Although David and I, I can tell you, could argue for hours or discuss or whatever it is that we do. David Edelstein uh, is America's greatest living film critic. Uh, thanks to him. Thanks to everybody who worked on this show, most especially Kat and Betsy Kaplan. And thanks to you for listening. And perhaps you're sitting in your house arguing right now with me, perhaps. Many dreams have been brought to your doorstep. Just lie there and they die there. Are you warm? Are you real? Mona Lisa are just a cold and lonely, lovely work of art.